All right. Children, four years old to fifth grade, you can head on out to Children's Church, and while they're headed out, adults, you get to take your quiz, the moment you've been waiting for all week, I'm sure. And I will warn you, read carefully. I think you le- we learned our lessons last week. Read carefully, all right? So take a few moments, and if you have any questions about the quiz, just email Tony Sauls. If you have any issues, email Tony Sauls. If you get something wrong, email Tony Sauls. You get the point. So, uh, no, Tony has been gracious to put this together for me, and he's done a great job. So take this quiz over the next few minutes, and then we'll go over our answers. All right, you got it? Need a few minutes? Linda, you got them? All right. Hicks over there doing a group collaborative effort, I see. I just see Eric shaking his head. Every time Brenna points to an answer, he's shaking his head. So that can't be good. Exactly, exactly. Well, let me, let me, let's go over these answers uh, real quickly, and we'll get going. we got a lot of ground to cover today. So uh, we're covering today man, the theology of man, the theology of the gospel, and then of eternal security. And I grouped them together because they really they go well together. They're, they're tied in together. And so here on your quiz, number one, human beings have no natural or inherent desire toward God. That's true. True. No, we're not, we're not seeking. Again, this is going to be biblical theologies. Human beings have no natural inherent desire towards God. You can go to Romans 1, 17, although they knew God, they did not honor him nor give thanks to him uh, all throughout the Bible. Uh, Sin, we are in sin. We're, We're not we're not on our way to God. We're, we're, we're enemies. All humanity, uh, there's, this is like 1-1, one, one. all humanity is born corrupt, guilty, and has no inherent desire towards God. True. Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. We'll look at that today. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation and are more important than any other part of creation because they are created in the image of God. True, false. True. True. People are getting hesitant to blare out their answers. I hear it. It starts off, true. We'll look at that today. Genesis 1, um, Genesis 5 all talks about that man was made in the image of God. The first man, Adam, was created ex nihilo or create. Now, be careful. Create. The first man was created out of nothing. True or false? False. Created out of dust. Man, I read that the first time. I said, Tony's trying to be tricky here. Tricky. He was formed out of dust. Dust is something. I hate it. Uh, Gospel, theology of the gospel. On the cross, Jesus voluntarily substituted himself for the sinners the Father chose to save and bore the wrath of God in their place. True or false? True. True. We'll look at that today, the idea of substitution. Number two, a sinner must pray the sinner's prayer to be saved. False. False. Absolutely not. Number three, because God is love, in the end, every sinner will be saved from his wrath. True or false? False, false. Every sinner will not be. The the road is narrow. Many, many will not, unfortunately. Christ's death was a propitiatory sacrifice that appeased the wrath of God. True or false? True, absolutely. We're going to look today, really the idea of propitiation, one of, my, one of my favorite topics, we're going to look at it briefly today. We could spend weeks uh, on propitiation, and we'll look at some verses there that show that all throughout the Bible. 
Number five, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God immediately determined he would save sinners. True or false? Be careful. False, false. Before the creation of the world, God's plan was already in place. This was not a reaction, so to speak. The Father, rather than the Son or the Holy Spirit, chose the people he would save. True or false? True, true. Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. And so you see the Father's sovereignty there. Uh, eternal security in justification. God declares sinners righteous. True or false? True, true, absolutely. We'll look at these verses uh, specifically today. The legal basis for a sinner's justification is their faith. False. Yeah, people were, hey, false? There you go. Yes, that's false. It's, it's apart from works. It's apart from works. Christ has, has done the work. Uh, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. That's Romans 3, verse 20. Sinners are justified when they believe. True, true. Sinners are justified through the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, and it's received by faith, but they're, they're, when they believe, Christ has made the payment. Faith sort of applies that, if you will, to our, to our lives, if you will. Saving faith can be lost if a person commits grievous sin. False, false. God's power sustains and, and uh, those who are, are of faith. Saving faith never wavers and never doubts. That's false, false. We, we, we waver. We waver. We we have we have. I'm, I'm maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know, but I, I waver. I'm not. Thank you. Who? Me and you are together. Me and you are together. That's Lindsay back there. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. There are many days where I wonder how in the world am I even saved? What in the world is going on here? But uh, so we'll we're hopefully today will help. Today will help solidify those answers and the theology behind them. So. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so I want to jump right in to our theology of, of man. And you can follow on your handout. If you're visiting, there's a Bible in front of you. We're going to cover a lot of Bible verses, cover a lot of ground today. And so it'll be like sword drills back in the day. But I, I say I want to start with a biblical theology of man. There, there's lots of ideas out there about man. There's lots of theologies, if you will, regard, with regards to man. But many of them, unfortunately, are not biblical. The, 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 where the, what the Bible puts forth regarding man in his sin is very different than, than what the world puts forth. And it's very important that we understand this because who did God save? Did God save good people or did God save enemies? Did God save good pe great people that were just more or less good except for a few hiccups? Or did he save people that whose hearts, as Jeremiah 17, 9 says, are desperately wicked? Who can understand them? And, and it's a big deal how you answer that. Did God just kind of bump us over the, over the hump, get us over the edge, just kind of push us over? We were so close on our own and then he pushed us over? Or, or did God send his son to die for those who were, who were haters, who were enemies? Big difference. And so our theology of man is very important. I, I was reading a, reading a book on, on evangelism and just sharing the gospel, and, and this the gentleman that wrote it says when he shares the gospel with somebody, if he, had, if he had one minute 
to speak, if he had, let me say, he said if he had 10 minutes to speak to somebody, he would spend nine of them expressing the sinfulness of mankind, and he would spend one of those minutes talking about the solution. Do, are we in need of a Savior? Are, are, we in need, are we utterly incapable of saving ourselves? Again, these answers impact the gospel. And, and in our own sinfulness, we're numb and dull to our own sinfulness. That's the effects of just how sinful we are. We're, we're numb in some ways to our own sinfulness. And so I want us to have a biblical theology of man, of the gospel, and then of eternal security. So the first thing in your hand out there, man is created in the image of God. If we were to go to Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and all over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Over in chapter 5 of Genesis... This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. There, there, this is immensely important. There, there's so much that we could unpack right here, but it, but it tells us there that, that, God ha, that man has, has some dignity, they have worth they're crea- because of their creator. Almost like a piece of art you know, has worth because of who created it we we have worth and we have dignity there because of our creator but but specifically it says we were created in the image of god and and i want to unpack this just for a moment because this makes man unique from let's say animals and what it means is that we have a moral sense we have a moral awareness we're accountable we're we we have the ability to go beyond just our mere instincts Animal, animals act upon instinct. They don't reason out what they're going to do. There's no moral accountability. There's no, there's no consequences considered and all that. And you and I have that. You and I as human beings, we are aware that we are aware, if that makes sense. We're not merely instinctive. We are aware that we're aware. We make decisions. We decide. We, we have a, a knowledge of, of right and wrong. We're moral beings, if you will, by design. There, there's in, and that goes, that's what's unpacked, really, when you talk about in God's image. There's a sense of awareness there. And, and we were made, again, they, when, when, God, when Adam and Eve were created, they had perfect fellowship with God. They, they were right there in the garden. They were given one rule, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Guess what happened? They sinned. They sinned. They chose to disobey. They sinned. Because of that, you see, number two, Adam sinned, and thus all humanity has sin imputed to them through Adam. Every single one of us are sinners, born sinners. We're not, we're not sinners become, we're, because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And Genesis 3 recounts that. And, and Genesis 3, 14 and following gives the, the ramifications for Adam and Eve sinning. Cursed is the ground, uh, enmity between the man and the woman. The woman's labor, labor and childbirth pains would be, would be intensified. The ground would fight back against Adam and, and all of these things because of sin. You go over to, to Romans chapter 
5, and he, and he says, starting verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The, the, the high-level word there would be seminally present. God has wrapped all of us up in Adam. We're sinners. The, 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 the payment of that, the punishment of that is death. God immediately threw Adam and Eve out of the garden, a picture of, him, of not being in his presence. And all of us, all of us, as a result of Adam's sin, God judged the entire human race. All of us are wrapped up in Adam in sin. All of us are now subject to the penalty and the, the imputation of sin, which brings upon death. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 7 through 14, Paul talks about that. In verse 24, he said, O wretched man that, am I, and that I am, who will save me, who will deliver me from this body of death? In Adam, we all sinned. And sin is not just, sin is not just simply doing wrong. It's, it's, it's not just a social error. It's not just a, a failure. It's rebellion. It's defiance. It's retreat from God. Galatians 3.22 says that God has shut every single person up under sin. This is our standing before God. Sinners separated. Everything that's gone wrong in, in hum humanity and all that we see, it's a result of sin. The consequences of sin. And it can all be traced back to Adam and Eve there in the garden. And the result of that sin, you see, number three, our sin alienates us from God, and we are incapable of reconciling ourselves to God. Listen, listen to Ephesians 2, verse 1, that gives a really an a, a, a overview, a, a synopsis uh, that's complete, though, of, of where we are. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and we were, listen, by nature children of wrath. That, that's who you are as a sinner. Alienated from God, fully deserving of God's wrath, wrath, because of your sin. We have coming, apart from somebody intervening, some, apart from somebody stepping in and, and taking it for us, here's what we are due, wrath. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The, the picture that the Bible presents is one uh, is a man in their sin it's one of total depravity it, it, and and again it doesn't it doesn't mean that you'll commit every sin that's possible to commit it does say every sin that could be committed lies in your heart you're capable of committing every sin they lie in your heart you go to Jeremiah 17:9 the heart is desperately wicked who can understand it you go to Isaiah 64:6 and says even the deeds that you and I have done in righteousness Compared to God's holiness, it says they're filthy rags. And I won't go into what that means, but it's gross. It's gross. 
That's our best, our deeds done in righteousness. You go to Romans chapter 3, and, and, and Paul deals with this. He says, what, are, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction, misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I, I, that's pretty, pretty, pretty conclusive, Paul. I don't think there's any wondering what Paul is trying to communicate. That is, that is man in his sin apart, separated from God. Sinners, totally separated, totally alienated. And, and beginning in chapter 3 of, of Genesis, you see God reveal His plan to reconcile lost, sinning mankind back to Himself. And, and that is what we refer to here as, as the gospel. And I want to give us a theology of the gospel, of God making a way for sinners unrighteous sinners to be reconciled back to a righteous, holy God. How can a holy God, really, how can a holy God accept into His presence sinners? That's the dilemma. And if my memory, if my memory serves me well, hold on, let me, give me one second to try to find this verse. I did not write it down, but I think it's Proverbs 17. Yeah, Proverbs, listen to Proverbs 17, 15. This is really God's dilemma in a sense. Not that, not that God has a dilemma or whatever, but there's, here's the problem. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So someone who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous. How, how is God going to save an unrighteous wicked sinner like you and I, and how is he going to do it rightly and in line with his nature? That's the gospel. That's why God designed the gospel just as he did. It's his way of dealing with his creation's sin and making a way for their sin to be rightly forgiven, and thus they can be reconciled back into intimacy and a right relationship and accepted into his presence. And, and I want to look at, there's, this is so rich and so multifaceted, I want to look at these, but at its core, you see on your handout, the gospel is God's plan for reconciling sinful man back to himself. Reconciling sinful man back to himself. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17 and 19, says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, now all these things are from God who, re oh, I read that, namely that God who was in Christ, now that, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Those of us who have been reconciled are then to go about seeking to offer reconciliation. 
I, 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 was, I was grateful yesterday my phone rang, and it was my mother-in-law, and so, of course, I answered it on the first ring. And um, Barbara says, Chris, are you busy? I'm like, well, I'm never too busy for you. And so she says, I, I need your help. I need your help. Barbara was at, Barbara was at a restaurant, and she was sharing the gospel with a, with a lady who is in another faith. Let's say that to protect her. And Barbara was just laying out beautifully the plan, the gospel, and, and how she could be reconciled. And, and this individual was, was wanting to know, she was arguing about, the, really wanted to know, where in the Bible does Jesus claim to be equal with God? So Barbara used phone to friend, and she called me. And so we spent about 15 minutes with this individual, walking her through passages. But we've been given, we who have been reconciled to God, I was grateful because Barbara understands, we who have been reconciled to God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have been given that same ministry to go seek reconciliation for other lost sinners. And this is, again, the reconciliation is specifically through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is, it, is, it is God's way of taking, and this is key, it is taking people who are in Adam. As sinners, we are in Adam. And taking people who are in Adam and taking them and placing them in Christ. There's a transfer that takes place. I mean, it, it, the, there was a debt to pay, there was a penalty to pay, all of that we're going to look at. But in the, in the gospel, in salvation through the gospel, you see it on your handout, the man, the man and man responding, man is transferred from one dominion to another. You have, we have to grasp that. There's a change of dominion. And, and we see this, we're going to study Colossians when we're done with this series on beliefs, but in Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 Paul says this he says for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption the forgiveness of sins you you as a believer if you're a believer here today you're no longer an Adam you've been transferred into a new kingdom a new domain whatever you want to call it that's ruled by Christ it's not ruled by sin and that anymore and death it's ruled by Christ it's ruled by eternal life that's why Paul in Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is now in heaven. Realize, believer, that you don't live in sin anymore. You live in, you live in a new, no, new domain. It's ruled by Christ. Will you sin? Yeah, but that's not, that's not in line with your new nature. And in the gospel, he's given you power to overcome that sin. You've been rescued. You've been transferred from the of domain of darkness where death reigns to a domain of life where Christ and eternal life reigns. A domain of light, it says. And, and the Bible pictures this in many, many ways. And, and the challenge for us is try to get a, a holistic approach or picture to, to all the ways that the Bible depicts and presents this salvation. It's almost like a diamond with a lot of different cuts and a lot of different facets. And we need to, we need to understand it fully if we're going to fully appreciate the gospel. How can man's sinfulness be rightly forgiven and thus God's creation be restored to their relationship with God? How do you take an unrighteous sinner and rightly make him righteous again? That's the question. I mean, how can, how can we be transferred 
from a domain that is in Adam, that is in sin and death, and be transferred into a domain, if you will, that's ruled by Christ. Literally, you are in Christ, believer. Paul cannot use that statement enough. You are in Christ. How does that happen? And God's solution, God's plan, I don't, I don't want you to make it like he had to react or something. God's plan is to crucify his son and three days later to resurrect him. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. And so I want us to walk through real quickly as we can here the, the biblical picture of this and how it happened and for us to get a total, try to get a total picture of the greatness and the awesomeness of the gospel. Why, it, why man would have, could have never and would have never. Again, you look at 1 Corinthians 2.14, for the natural man does not appraise the things of the gospel for their foolishness to him. Why? Because this is God's plan. It's not man-centered. And you see it first on your handout there, try, I'm just trying to explain the gospel. Christ died as our substitute, bearing God's wrath in our place. He died as our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says what... Turn, no, that's 1 Corinthians. It would be helpful if I got to 2 Corinthians. I mean, I, I know what the verse says. but He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see the idea of substitution? He made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Substitute. Christ did not die for his own sins. Christ died for your sins and for my sins. He bore the punishment that was due your sins and my sins. All of the guilt, all of the wrath, all, he did not have that to pay. He paid that as our substitute. He's our substitute. A substitute is someone who takes the place of another. It was our sin that crossed Christ's life, not his own sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Christ bore our sins in his body. And here's why, this, here's why this is important. You'll see it on your handout. Christ's death met the righteous demands of God so that he could totally forgive and receive us to himself. Fully met the demands. The wages of sin is death. Christ died as our substitute in our place. Therefore, God can be perfectly righteous and forgive you. Why? Because Christ, because the penalty was paid. But not only, not only did Christ die as our substitute, you see number two, Christ died in order to make a way for sinners to be purchased from their slavery to sin and set free from sin's bondage. The idea is literally being redeemed. It's being bought out of the slave market, if you will. And in that day, slave trade was huge. Slave, uh, a vast amount of the Roman population were slaves, and they could be bought and sold, and a person could buy a slave, and he could set him free. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you have been bought... With a price, therefore glorify God in your body. He purchased. Matthew 20, 28 says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see the idea of, of your freedom being purchased. 
And that's the fill in there. What this pictures in Scripture is Christ's death literally paying the ransom to set a person free from sin and death, to, to take you out of in, Christ, in Adam, you're in Adam, that's the domain, to buy you out of that domain and place you in a new domain, namely in Christ. Because we have been bought with a, by Christ, we belong to Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Or do you not know that you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body? In 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You've been bought with a price. We were previously slaves to sin. We have been set free to become a slave, if you will, to Christ. New domain. We're not bought and set free to then live a life of wanton pleasure and to live for ourselves. We're not set free and just, hey, I hope you make it. No, we're set free, and we'll see it in a minute. We're adopted into God's family. We are in Christ, and we have been set free to glorify Him, the one who has set us free. Literally been purchased and removed from the slave market altogether. We weren't just, again, set free and said, well, I hope, you, I hope it works out. Transferred, new domain, new citizenship. And, with the, and this purchase price came at tremendous, tremendous cost. The, the, the price there was huge, if you will, to set us free. Galatians 3, 13 says, Christ redeemed us, that's the word, to, to purchase from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Literally, he became a curse for us. You see both the idea of redemption, but then also substitution. First, or Galatians 4, 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption. You see there, the taking in into his family as sons. That's the issue of Galatians. It's the sonship. He emphasizes the sonship. Do we totally obey? Are we totally loyal? Are we slaves in a sense? Absolutely. The other side of that is we do it as sons and daughters. Do I expect Sarah Grace and Bradley Cooper Basham to obey me? Absolutely I do. But I, they do it as a son. Total obedience. There's a son and a daughter. And both are there. Again, to get the full picture Slaves, yes. Sons and daughters, yes. Christ took the curse and he took the condemnation. You see it on your handout. That was due our sin. You see the idea there of purchase price and substitution. Number three, Christ died to make a way to reconcile lost sinners to their creator and thus have peace with God. Because of our sin, we were enemies of God. Romans 5 says, Christ died for the ungodly, for verse 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the good guys. He died for ungodly. He says, but God demonstrates, verse 8, his own love for this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Go on to say, he goes on to call us enemies. Says what he saved us from, Romans 5 9. It says, Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Because of your sin, what you had coming to you was wrath. Wrath. You've been saved from that. You and a holy, righteous God were enemies. There was enmity between you. And through Jesus Christ, God has made a way for you to be reconciled, brought back together, and to make God is rightly, you see it on your handout, making peace between himself and sinners 
through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you were to go to Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to Romans 8, 1, it says, For therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is, one millisecond before you got saved, you know what you had coming from God to you is condemnation. Now in Christ, there is no condemnation. None. E- even back to Colossians 1, we, by, if I preach this sermon long enough, we won't need to study Colossians, but Colossians 1.21, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, you see who God saved? Formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Peace. Because your sins are forgiven, that which created enmity has been forgiven. He's reconciled you. Four, Christ died as our propitiation, satisfying the wrath and all the righteous demands of God towards sinners. Propitiation, that's a huge word, it's a rich word. I almost preached this entire sermon on just that one word. It's that rich. But you see the idea of propitiation all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, you see it through the sacrifice of the, of the animals, specifically in Leviticus 16 with regards to the Day of Atonement. And what would happen is the high priest would have two goats, and, and one, one he would lay his hand on, he would lay his hand on one goat, and he would slice that goat's neck, killing it, and he would take that blood, and he would sprinkle it on the other goat. And, you, and what he would do is he would take that other goat, and they would set it free into the wilderness signifying that the penalty had been paid and yet you're being separated from your sin. Sending them away. And and you see this in the New Testament, the same picture. Romans 3, 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who those believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ, whom God publicly displayed, and here it is, publicly displayed as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. You see this in Hebrews 2.17, you see it in 1 John 4.10. What we are saved from in the gospel, you see it on your handout, is the wrath of God. Why? Because it was satisfied on Christ, in Christ. God hates sin. He's got to judge sin. And what he did is he judged sin on his son. Publicly made him a curse. Why? So that he could forgive sinners. So that he could remain righteous and forgive unrighteous. You go to Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is being revealed... You go, to, you go to 2, 1 through 6, it speaks of the wrath of God. He, listen, God hates sin. Hates it. You and I are sinners. 
How is God going to deal with our sin? How is God going to deal with His creation who are sinners? How is He going to deal with it in the right way that they could be reconciled to Himself? And the answer was this, I'll pour all of my wrath, all of my hate towards sin out on my own Son. Therefore, I can forgive whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord could be saved. Why? Because their sin was dealt with by my Son. And what we see all throughout the Scriptures is that, that God took the initiative, you see it on your handout, to make a way for sin to be dealt with. God came to us, not vice versa. The Gospel is God loving those who are separated. It is God taking these objects of wrath and turning them into His children. And all of this is apart from the law, Romans 3 says. Not our doing. It's God's initiative. And propitiation was made by the death of Christ. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make an atonement for yourselves at the altar. It's the blood. And the beauty of the gospel is this, that our Creator has become our Redeemer. He's become our Redeemer. And believing in the gospel, seeing ourselves in Christ, shields us, if you will, from God's wrath and hatred towards sin. Why? Because He satisfactorily already poured that out on Christ. Please see that. It shields us that, that no pardon can be can be rightly offered apart from somebody dealing with sin. And in Christ, God has put our sin away from us. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is the west. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come let us reason. Though your sins were scarlet, they will be white as snow. That's why I love that song uh, and, and asked Daniel to play that this morning. The idea that you're clean. The idea of Romans 5.20, that where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. That though your sins are as scarlet, they be white as snow. He goes on to say, though your sins were as crimson, they can, crimson, they can be like wool. But not only, not only all of that, number five, Christ died so that sinners could be forgiven by God, thus removing the charges God held towards sinners due our sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, sin, unrighteousness. God is righteous. In our sin, we're unrighteous. The two don't go together. How, how can that be forgiven us? And that's the gospel. Forgiveness is God rightly removing all charges against us because of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's work. Literally in Colossians 2.13, he talks about the, the sin debt being canceled. Find it real quick. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Forgiveness, cancellation of debt. Forgiveness really is the removal of the right to punish. You forgo the right to punish somebody. Why? Because Jesus Christ took the punishment. See, and again, the gospel, it's very important. It wasn't that God just said, you know what, Chris, you're a pretty good guy. Let's just act like that didn't happen. No, no, somebody had to pay. 
There was a debt that had to be paid. Jesus Christ paid the debt for us so that we could be forgiven. Six, Christ's death makes a way for God to justify sinners, thus declaring them righteous, free from all sin and its punishment. You see on your handout, to justify, it means to declare righteous, to declare righteous. It's the pardon of sin. It's the removal of sin. It takes place at the moment of our salvation. Listen, it's not about being good enough. It's not about working your way to God. It's not even about you partnering with God to try to work it off together. This gospel is all God. It's all God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you are saved through faith and not by works, lest any man would boast. 1 Corinthians, why is the gospel, God designed the gospel, why? Because it would look foolishness before us, why? So that we would not boast, verse 31 of chapter 1. We love to boast. We love to take credit for things that we didn't do. And God has designed the gospel so that it would be the great humbler of all people. All people. None of us work for our salvation. None of us earn our salvation. None of us had any part of our salvation. It's all God. All boasting is eliminated. Galatians 2.21 I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly. If you could earn your salvation why did God crucify His Son? Why? Because you can't earn your salvation. And the gospel was absolutely necessary if you were to be forgiven and all this other stuff that we've talked about. And, and righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. We saw that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we would become the what? The righteousness of God. What reigns this new domain that we live in, in Christ, is righteousness. The citizenship of God, His kingdom is ruled and reigned by righteousness. Back all the way to Matthew 5.20, He said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Pharisees were very good at being externally righteous. They were not internally righteousness. He goes on in Matthew 5, 47, says, Therefore, if your father is perfect, you be perfect. The gospel is Jesus Christ who is perfect, being our substitute, and by grace, granting us his perfection. God is crediting my account with Jesus Christ's work and perfection. He's declaring me to be righteous, justifying and it's on, on your handout, it says, God forgives our sin, not on the basis of mercy, but on the basis of justice. He didn't just sweep it under the rug. He dealt with it. He dealt with the penalty. He dealt with the punishment. He dealt with the payment. Jesus Christ did that. Every single ounce of judgment, wrath, penalty, all of it, Jesus Christ paid. Therefore, it would be unjust as believers for God to hold our sin against us any longer if we believe in Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ already paid it. Why punish your son if you're going to still punish us? Those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus Christ already took it. He doesn't forgive. God doesn't forgive on the basis of what we will do, but on the basis of what Christ has already done. The work is completed. There's no place for purgatory, no place for self-effort, no need for reincarnation to give it another shot. All of these are unbiblical beliefs. All of those, listen to me, all of those attack the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ did. All of those. 
attack the sufficiency of Christ. You don't need to be reincarnated and give it another shot. We have some neighbors, and, and I share the gospel with them many, many times, and they're of another faith. And he says, well, if it, if I'm, if it doesn't work out, I'll just come back as something else. Okay. I guess. I said, but that's not okay. Jesus Christ guarantees. I don't need, I don't need to redo, because Christ, Christ did it perfectly. And the, the challenge for all of us, the challenge for all of us in here, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get through this, and don't mistake my, my love for it, for, for anger or anything like that, but I'm, I'm begging us, I'm begging us to grasp this. In John 3.36, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, you see how he equates obedience and belief there, who, who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There, there's only two responses. Two responses to this gospel. It's, it's, it's believe it or deny it. There's no on the fence. And if you say you believe it, then obey it. Live it. We saw last week, God has given you His Spirit to, to, to help with that, to enable that. And to, to say, the Bible, 1 John 1 says, to say otherwise is to make God out to be a liar. To question this gospel, to question your own sinfulness, it says in 1 John 1 that you make God out to be a liar. We're, we're dead, we're hopelessly wicked, we're without hope apart from God's intervention. And that's exactly what he did in the gospel. Believe, listen to me, believe and be saved, that's the gospel. Paul says, I beg you, I beg you as an ambassador of Christ, be reconciled to God. I would beg you. Be reconciled to God. Repent of your sinfulness. Re repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of the ways where you've tried to help God out or thought you were good enough and simply fall at the feet, at the foot of the cross and what Christ did. It was sufficient. For no matter, no matter what sin, no matter what's, what's hounding you, no matter what Satan is, is hounding you with, no matter what sin he's reminding you of, where sin abounded, listen to me, Grace, much more, abounded. There is no sin that cannot be repented of and Jesus' blood wash away. The only responses, the only responses to this gospel is to believe it and then it's to live as though you're a citizen of heaven and that's sanctification and that's a work. It's not a perfect process, but overall... You're moving into work. You look, what he's doing for people in Christ is he is conforming you to the image of Christ. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians, uh, what is that, 4, 16, that this momentary light affliction is producing us an eternal weight of glory. What is he doing in all of our experiences? He's conforming us to the image of his son, Romans 8, 31, 30. That's the gospel. It's Christ. It's Christ's work. It's huge. That Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, nobody, nobody comes to the Father but through me. If, if, if this word is true, 
Christ has singularly eliminated every other religion in the world. Every other way that man has created to try to get to God. Jesus Christ in one verse said they're all lies. If he's who he says he is. And if Jesus is not who he says he is, then we're fools. 1 Corinthians 15. Because he's a liar in the sense that he is deceived. Or he's a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis said, in the sense that he thought he was somebody that he really wasn't. Or the third proposition, the third possibility is that he is Lord. That he is who he says he is. And that brings us, that brings us to the security I mean, think for just a moment at what we just looked at it, all that Jesus Christ did. You would have to undo all of that in order for you and I to lose our salvation. The reality is that the basis of our assurance, it lies with the character, within the character of God, not the ability of man. Why? Because the whole gospel was built in the character of God. Not my ability or inability. You can't do enough to earn salvation, and you can't do enough to cancel salvation. The question is, have you really been saved? That's why you see there if. You see a lot of these if clauses in the New Testament. If indeed you've truly been saved, you're saved. I believe in the security of salvation. If indeed you're truly saved. That's the question. And think about this. You see on your handout, just for our security, God chose believers in eternity past and predestined us to sonship in Christ. To think that our good works had anything to do with it, God chose you before you ever did anything. Just to prove to you it's not based on you. That's Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Hebrews 7, 25, 1 John 2, 1. God, Christ lives to make intercession of believers. So somebody would have to be more powerful than God in order for you to lose your salvation. Not only that, we saw it last week, John 14, 17. The Holy Spirit indwells believer how long? Forever, it says. You think about just the word eternal salvation. What does eternal apply? Like, he don't give you partial salvation. He don't give you temporary salvation. Eternal life. I mean, never mind John 6, 39, John 10, 28, 1 Peter 1, 5, 1 John 5, 13. Never mind, again, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. It's permanent. You, you go to 1 Peter 1.4, inheritance that will never fade away. At some 244 times in 210 verses, the Bible speaks of our inheritance and its permanence. Inheritance. I mean, the kids this week in, 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 in VBS, and they're looking at Colossians 1. 15 and 16, and, and some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and listen, and in him all things hold together. Our, our salvation, if you are saved... Is secure. But it doesn't mean, listen to me, it doesn't mean that we sit back and relax. The security of our salvation was not meant for to create lazy Christians, slothful Christians. 
If, if that's your take on eternal security, you, you're, you're wrong. The reality is our security was meant to free us to risk everything. Why? Because we can't lose what we have in Christ. This world can take nothing from you. It only ushers you in quicker to what you have in Christ. It frees us to risk. And, and your growth in Christ, your walk with Christ, will never really take off until you grasp this fact. That you are secure, but you are secure in Christ. And it's that joy of knowing who we belong to that fuels our obedience. Listen, our security frees us to risk. It's very difficult to risk for something you're not sure exists. Agreed? It's very difficult. If you're not sure it exists, it's hard to risk. But if you know, if you're convinced that Jesus Christ will support the full weight of your soul, then live for Him. Risk for him. Why? Because he's got it. He holds all things together. It frees us to risk. It frees us to say no to sin. Why? Because we're saying yes to someone who's better. Who can support the full weight of our soul. And it's only when, we, when we're overwhelmed at the glory of Christ's sacrifice that we're transformed into glory ourselves. Why? Because we understand that we're secure. And, and that's exactly, that's exactly, that's exactly what it means to be a deacon. We're, we're about to ordain our first group of deacons here at Odessa. And these are, these are men, these are men who have wives that to the best of our knowledge and understanding, these are men and women who, now we're ordaining the, the men, but the wives obviously come with that. These are men who crave God and crave righteousness because they love the righteousness that's been given to them. And the word deacon itself, it means servant. It's a servant. There's lots of men, there's lots of men in this church who we could have nominated to be deacons, but these are the ones we chose right now. By God's grace, we will nominate more. But Jesus Christ, in the gospel, in the security of our salvation, in all of this, has given us the perfect model for what it means to become a servant, even to the point of death, to the glory of the Father, and to the salvation of the lost. Paul writes in Philippians 2, think about this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, listen, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, that although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. That, that's what it means, guys, to be a deacon. To pour yourself out. To empty yourself. It means humility. Why? Because you've been first served that same way by Christ. It's a servant. 
And you can serve, you can serve, why? Because you are being served and you have been served and you will be served by Jesus Christ. It all goes back to the gospel. It all, a deacon is, a, is not the only servants in the church. Deacons are leading servants. Their job is to, to organize service. These, these guys are not the only nine people that serve in this church. They organize and rally the troops for others to serve, and they're, they're going to get after that. And, and, and again, they will address specific needs that arise in the life and the people of the church. But we do this corporately. We do this together. We've, we've vetted these guys out to the best of our abilities. We've vetted their wives out. You've voted on them. And these nine individuals will become your deacons, servants. But it's, again, it's not just them that serve. Every Christian who is in this room today is called to be a servant. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our model. He's our servant. Though, though he was God, he emptied himself, it says, took on the form of a slave, servant, and served. That emptied Tony spoke to that. It was took on. He took on a humanity. But de- deacons, deacons are servants. Their, their role is to serve. They're to organize others so they can serve. There's too much, there was too much then in Acts 6 for 7, and there's too much work for 9. But the bottom line, again, is all believers are servants. Deacons are simply tasked with organizing this and leading out as examples. That's why we say they're leading servants. They lead the charge in serving the needs of the church, setting the pace. They meet needs according to the word. They support the ministry of the word. They seek the unity of the body through the word, as Lee spoke to this morning. They're servants. And they're free to serve. Why? Because they've first been served. And Christ is your model. Empty yourselves, men. As he gave himself up for others, you so do the same. You belong to Christ. You exist for the glory of Christ. But you're here to serve. What you're embarking on is a, is, a, is a huge task. It's a daunting task, an emotional task, but it is a worthy task to give yourself to the furtherance of the gospel and the glory of God through service. And I, and I pray that you'd be men who fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, as it says in Hebrews 12, who for the joy set before Him enduring the, endured the cross, despising His shame. That one day, listen to me, man, one day, one day, God's going to honor you for your service. One day, God will repay. He'll reward. So I pray that you would do it to the glory of God. And so, men, as I call your name, you and your wives, if you would come down, and I'm going to ask men, if you'll kneel down in front of the chair facing the audience, uh, and if your bride would stand next to you, once we get up here, we're going to have the elders uh, come and pray. While we're praying, I would ask you, church, to pray. The, these men are volunteering, volunteering rather, to put themselves on the front line. Opening themselves up for, for attack, if you will. Pray for them. I pray that as we pray for them individually, that you'd pray for them individually. That you'd, that you'd buffet them with prayers constantly. Constantly.